morning, church. My name is Dale Perry. Hi. And I'd like to wish each and every one of you a safe, healthy, and happy 2024. <laughs> Today I'll be reading selected portions from 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may abstain a blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. Amen. Thanks, Dale. Give her a hand. She did a terrific job. So last summer, I had the privilege of preaching uh, four sermons from the last couple of chapters of Revelation, and uh, a friend of mine suggested, why don't you put them into like a book form so we can read them? And I, I manuscript all my sermons anyway, and so uh, I, I took up the challenge, and here it is. It's done. It's called, uh, it, it's, it was a sermon series about what life would be like in the new heavens and new earth. There's only 10 copies out there, uh, so um, everybody stay put. You know, don't don't rush. We don't we don't want people trampled on on the way. I know it's going to happen. I just know this. Um, but uh, yeah, you're, you're free to help yourselves now. If they all go, I've left a sheet there. You can sign up. I can email this to you just as easily. So if you leave me your name, your email address, then I will email you the uh, manuscript that is between these pages. You don't you'll get the nice front cover, 
But you won't get this spirally thing. I can't put that through the email. I haven't figured that out yet. So uh, here, uh, that's an extra one. You can have it because that's it. So let's pray and get our minds where they need to be, and that's in God's Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us a promise that uh, your Word will go out to accomplish everything that you have planned for it. And we pray that your Word will accomplish your work in us today as we hear it preached and receive it from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Um, Mental health experts tell us often that uh, having a healthy sense of personal identity is good for our own lives as well as for our relationships. And Uh, Quite a lot of factors go into shaping our personal identity, uh, family of origin, for example, um, our ethnicity, um, geographic location, where we were born, where we live, that sort of thing, experiences that we have and opportunities that come our way. Plus, God gives us our own personality too. But Christians have an extra sense of personal identity that the world doesn't get. And as I was thinking about this this morning, actually brushing my teeth and thinking about this. I thought, you know, we're actually Trinitarian in our identity. Now think about it. We are made in the image of God, made in his likeness and image, God the Father. We have the Son's character being formed in us by the power of the Spirit. That's all three persons of the Trinity. The world doesn't have that. Our identity originates from heaven, not from anything in this world. And so if you, if, uh, there's, there's two homework assignments, and I expect every one of you to do them before the day is over, but uh, be that as it may. This is the first one. Sometime, just for fun, go read Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 and list all of the things that Paul says about who we are in Christ. And that's the key phrase. There are 30 in Christ or something similar phrases in Ephesians alone. Almost 90 in the New Testament. And so Paul says that we are chosen, we are predestined, we are adopted, we are beloved of God, we are his own possession. These are the words, and so many more, but these are the words that define who we are in Christ. Not because we're wonderful people by any stretch, you know, like somehow God just couldn't get along without us, but it's because of Christ and his mercy He forgave us our sins, and spiritually speaking, he transported us out of this place of darkness into his kingdom of light. Now, understanding who we are um, is is really what this this text is about. And also, we have a God-sized purpose that helps us to understand who we are. Um, So, so, um, we know that this, this purpose is what sustains our lives and everything works against us following Jesus wholeheartedly. It sort of pulls us down earthward. And the danger is we'll give up before the race is over. But in verse 9, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter lists five true things about us to encourage us to keep on to fulfill the purpose that, that God has given to us. He calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And the purpose... The purpose for all of that? To proclaim the excellent qualities and virtues of Jesus Christ in this world. But I want to draw our attention just to one of those phrases this morning. Royal priesthood. How many of you woke up this morning and you thought, 
It is cool to be a royal priest. I didn't either. Except it was on my mind because of the sermon. No, of course, we don't, we don't think much about that. So I want us to think about that. What in the world does that mean for us? There's only been two royal priests in all of biblical history. The first one was Adam. He was a priest, and he was the crown of God's creation. He was a king. Now, he lost those roles in the fall, and the second royal priest was, is Jesus Christ himself. In between, God separated those two roles from, the, from his people. They were either kings or priests, but no one was ever to combine them, and God took this very seriously. In fact, you can read about it in Second Chronicles, where one king took, took the risk of being so arrogant and so proud that he wanted to also fill the role of a priest. His name was Uzziah. He started out his life very well. He loved the Lord. He was obedient to God. But he got so puffed up in his mind with pride that his accomplishments were because of himself that he decided, eh, I could be a priest too. Why not? And so he grabbed the sense, censer so that he would offer incense to God. The chief priest of the temple said, don't do it. Don't go in there. But he went in anyway, and immediately God punished him with leprosy. They had to usher him out of the temple. Nothing sinful can be in the presence of God. They ushered him out of the temple, and he could never worship in the temple again. To the day of his death, he had leprosy. That's how seriously God took these two roles. Now think about it. In Jesus, those two roles have combined. And when we are in Christ, those two roles combine in us. We're not just priests royal priests. And again, I ask, what in the world would that mean for the ways that we live? Well, a little background is helpful about the priests and their role. The priest was responsible and appointed to represent God to the people and the people to God. Very generally, that's their role. But there were some specifics. They had responsibilities, including interceding for God's people, being the agents of blessing to God's people, Defining what holiness is so that God's people understood how to properly come into the presence of God and worship him. One of their major duties was to guard the temple from anything evil coming into it. Most of the time this was people like Uzziah with, with uh, the leprosy. And it wasn't to protect God. It was to protect the people from God. They had to stay out because God was seriously holy and, they, and the priest needed to uh, make sure the people of God understood the weight of God's holiness. So they were responsible to teach God's people how to conduct their lives daily in the light of the holiness of God. They wanted, God wanted himself to be known through the people of God as a God of life, a God of beauty, and a God of order. And like I said, since the resurrection, now all believers in Christ are royal priests with many responsibilities. So what does that mean? Peter casts a vision here for us in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to, this is a very long passage, so what I've done is just to break it up into larger chunks and say, this is what 
it looks like Peter is saying about how royal priests conduct their lives before the Lord. Royal priests surpass behavioral expectations. Royal priests submit biblically to all authorities. And royal priests strive to love believers well. So let's look at each one of those. First of all, royal priests surpass behavioral expectations. Here's what Peter wrote. Beloved, I urge you... Oh, let me go back. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak so that when they may speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, Peter doesn't elaborate what the day of visitation is. It could be the return of Christ. It could be the day that Jesus visits an unbeliever and saves him or her. We don't know. He just says it this way. Now, priests are responsible for showing the excellencies of Christ in behavior towards others, especially unbelievers. And I think that he might... Peter might have in mind that this is a strategy. It's a strategy to fulfill the purpose, which is to show the excellencies of Christ. Now, how does that happen? Well, it's really a two-step process according to this, these two verses. The first step involves our transformation. That's verse 11. And the second step is how unbelievers see it and respond to it, and that's verse 12. So, in other words, our transformation and the impression that we um, effect on others. First step, transformation. We must understand there is a war going on right now at this very moment for our souls. The most valuable part of who we are is our soul, and, it's, and it, there's an attempt to ruin it. Everything in our culture aligns itself with our remaining sin, uh, sinful nature, and it's like an army that's mobilized for an invasion. And the minute we wet, raise the white flag of surrender and submit ourselves to Christ, that army goes into action. They don't take lightly to defection from their camp. How many of you have ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The um, Screwtape Letters? Anybody? A few of you? I'd really recommend it. It's a wonderful read. It's a short read, and it's clever, and it, but it's insightful. See, here's, here's the storyline. Um, Screwtape is a major league demon who's sort of the right-hand man of Satan. And uh, he is writing to his nephew, Wormwood. Now, Wormwood has been given an assignment. And the assignment is called a patient, that is, an unbeliever. And Wormwood's job is to keep the unbelieving patient unbelieving. But something terrible happens. The unbelieving patient gives his life to Christ. And Wormwood is just devastated. So, Screwtape writes him a letter, sort of a consolation letter, and this is what he says. There is no need to despair, my dear Wormwood. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp. And they're now with us. All of the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. You get there? There's a war there. There's a war for you. Now, when you read the phrase that uh, Peter wrote, abstain from fleshly lusts, what are the first things that, that sort of come to your mind? And the first thing may be, you know, some sort of sexual uh, 
sexual um, uh, promiscuity or, or something of that nature. That, I don't think that's on Peter's mind. It may be. I, it's hard to say. We don't know what's in Peter's mind, but we do know his words. And at the very beginning of this chapter, he says there are five things that we are to absolutely avoid. And I think this is on his mind when he says, abstain from these lusts. These lusts, by the way, the word lust can simply mean desires, right? It can be a desire or a passion for anything that you love more than Jesus. Stay away from these kinds of passions or desires. And they are uh, malice, deceit hypocrisy, envy, slander. We don't talk much about those in the church, do we? We're supposed to live free from those kinds of lusts, and so many more, but free from those. And I think those are on Peter's mind. And to be free from malice means that we want to be free from harming others, but instead do good to them. I was just reading... um, I didn't realize this uh, news story from a Christian organization uh, that uh, watches out for persecution of Christians. And in Nigeria, 200 or more believers were murdered on Christmas Eve just this year, in, uh, just this past Christmas Eve in Nigeria. N- nearly 50,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria over the last several years. Listen to this. Don't, don't do harm to them. Instead, do good. How hard would that be? How hard did that be? There was one mom who had her daughter beaten and her son's hand was cut off by a machete. How hard would it be to think about doing good to those who tried to kill you? Okay, freed from um, hiding behind distortions of the truth so that we can be trustworthy friends. We're to be free from pretending to be something we're not so that we can be authentically Christian. We are to be free from discontent so that we don't have, so that if we don't have what others have, we are free to genuinely be happy for those who have a good fortune that we don't, or freed from spewing defamatory statements about others so that we can genuinely rejoice in the achievements of others. Imagine, imagine that kind of transformation taken into your workplace. How would that change the atmosphere of a toxic workplace environment? Or your home? Or your school? Thank God it's not in our church. And I mean that. The second step is the impression that we leave on others. The grace of spiritual transformation takes place so that this new life in Christ that is in us emerges to be seen and acknowledged by others. Now, it's true. Non-believers may sl- speak slanderously about, about us, um, and even Peter recognizes that. They may even come up with tremendous conspiracy theories, but that's nothing new for the church. In the first 300 years of the church, in Rome, there was a conspiracy theory that Christians were cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Christ. All right? Or the other... Conspiracy theory was that the love feast that the Christians had was really nothing more than an orgy because in their culture in Rome, sex and love were equal. But the, the one that I find most interesting is that in Rome, there was sort of an edict against Christians because they were a threat to the social structures of Rome. And they were a threat to the social structures of the family. 
Boy, when I read that, I went, well, we haven't changed much, have we? It's here today. So they may say those things, but, but we are to exemplify excellent biblical behavior. By our behavior, we are to point others towards the wonderful virtues and excellencies of Jesus Christ. Now, people only see our outward actions, but our outward actions actually tell a story of the things that we value and the things that we hope in. You know, if, if you're the kind of person who, who says, you know what, after me, you come first. If people see that in us, they're just going to be looking in a mirror because that's exactly how they think. But what if they were to see a wife in sacrificial love to her husband who has a long terminal illness and her life is restricted to only the things that she can do for him and yet she is filled with joy. The joy of being able to serve her husband in this way. People would look at that and say, are you crazy? Or how about a family that uh, does everything they can in order to be generous to orphans? And people might, people might start wondering about you. They might start figuring out that you don't seem to really care about things like self-satisfaction. What, what, uh, how do you explain all of this? You see, what they're responding to, they cannot identify. They can't put a name to it. But what they're responding to, according to Peter, is glory. The glory of God. They're responding to that glory. What is that glory? The Hebrew word for that glory is kavod, and it means heavy, weighty, weightiness. You know, I, I'm a child of the 60s, i got to admit. I grew up saying, hey, man, that is really heavy. I had no idea what that meant, but everybody said it, so I did too. But it didn't mean this. I know that. It didn't mean this. The weightiness of God's holiness, resting on the people of God. That's what people can respond to. That gives us a stable life, satisfied by desires that put the spotlight on Christ, and we need to prepare, be prepared to explain. That's what Peter said in chapter 3, verse 15. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, the hope of the glory of God. Now, the second way that we live out our priesthood is submission to authority. So buckle your seatbelts. Submission to biblical authority, or, or uh, submission to um, submit, royal priests submit biblically to authority. That's the way I want to say it. And if you, re if you recall the list that Peter gave, it's to emperors as supreme or to governors. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And so we'll just transpose that to employers, employees. Wives, be subject to your husbands and husbands uh, subject to Christ as the inference. Peter doesn't say that, but that's clearly the inference when he uses the word likewise. Now, this is the longest part of uh, Peter's instructions, and it's really the most challenging, and, and it, it covers the common call that we all have as followers of Christ to submit to the authority of God, who reigns supreme over all authorities. So we are to submit to governor's authorities, employers to employees, I'm sorry, employees to employers, wives to husbands, and husbands to Christ. Now, I want to say something about this particular word. I think it's the ESV, and it says, be subject to. 
And that sounds like coercion. The Greek word hupotasso can be translated subject, be subject to, or be submissive to, either one. And I believe the context is what defines which one is to be used. If we believe in, in, uh, that the word is to be um, a, a coercive word, like you must be subject to, coercion, that's not the way Peter is using the word here because the context simply says, do this out of a willing heart. Do this willingly. Do this gladly. Submission is a humble reception of someone's authority in our lives. Now, it's true. People with authority should use that authority for the welfare of those who are under their authority. And that is everyone who has authority in any structure of society, be it the society, the family, the church, whatever it is, there is a reason for that authority, and it's the welfare of those other people. But Peter lists here four uh, structures of authority, the government, the workplace, the household, and the church. So rather than tackle each one of those, because that would mean we'd be here until next Christmas Eve, and that's not a good idea, I was just going to talk about, in general, the principles of biblical submission. The first thing we have to realize is that God places all authority as he wills. Romans 13 says this clearly. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. For the authority is God's servant for your good. Now, notice what Paul is not saying in that text. He's not saying, obey only those authorities established by God that are Christians and make godly policies. He's not saying that. And when we remember that Paul wrote this to the Roman church and Peter is writing this to his church, guess who was at the top of the authority chain? This maniac called Nero. And he's still writing it. Be subject to the authorities. The general command for submission means that for us, in our day, for us, from our president all the way down to the dog catcher of our cities, These men and women function in their roles delegated by God as his ministers. And this means that we are to properly be submitted to them. To resist those authorities is to resist God himself. That's what Paul said in Romans 13. So how, you know, we have to leave to the people who have authority how they use authority or abuse it. That's between them and God. But doesn't it raise the question in your mind? This is so, such a blanket statement. And, the, and then we have to think, yeah, but what about dot, dot, dot? What about? What about when they're just bad authorities? You know, in every single place where Peter or Paul talk about authority, they never give any exceptions to the rule. They just never do. And I think they do that on a purpose because they realize that in our hearts is the natural DNA of resisting authority. We've had it ever since we were born. We got it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Nothing has changed. And so we are obligated to not look for outs. However, we realize these very men, Peter and Paul, particularly Peter, resisted an authority but in a biblical way. That's the key. In Acts chapter 5, when uh, he was told you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore, he said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Well played. Well said. The reason we resist 
submission to authority is because it's baked into our fallen DNA. But the key to submissive to, to submission biblically is this. Peter writes it in verse 13, for the sake of the Lord. That's the key. We don't, resist, we, don't, we don't submit to authorities because they're men or women with power and authority. Yes, they have those things. But our goal is to show the excellencies of Christ. Who submitted to human authority for the Lord's sake? This is how he did it. He was with uh, Pilate. You might remember the scene where Jesus is before Pilate. And I'm just going to paraphrase what I think uh, you know, John wrote, um, but I'm, I'm going to elaborate it on a little bit in order to capture the idea. When Jesus said to Pilate, he didn't deny his authority. Instead, what he said was, I am submitting to you because my Father, who rules over you, gave you this authority over me right now. So he has given you the right to decide what you're going to do about me, but I want you to know that I'm honoring you because of the authority of God's reputation. That's biblical submission. Uh, I told this story, I guess, a while back. Somebody told me last night I had used this story before, so like I apologize, but I'm older now, so, you know, (laughs) deal with it. So if you've heard the story, you can kind of, you know, let your mind wander. And if you haven't, it's like, it's like a perfect, it's, for me, it was a perfect learning lesson about submission to authority and my problem of not wanting to do it. This is in Colorado, and between our home and the church was about a 13-mile drive, and there were several ways of getting there. Um, some of them were uh, faster than others, but one of them in particular was the fastest. And I studiously had tried to not go down that road. We were in a, I was in a small group with uh, some guys, and we were studying Romans 13, and this fellow walked into the small group one day, we're all talking about what, we're, what we studied out of 13 and what we, Romans 13 and what we think it means, and, he's, and he pops up and he says, hey, you know, guys, when that speed limit sign says that's the speed, it's as if God himself put it there. I know, for crying out loud. You're not wrong. This road that I studiously avoided was the road God used to break my habit of speeding. It was a wonderful road. It was straight, well-paved. There were never any potholes. Never. All we know out here are potholes. No, no, never potholes on this road. It was blacktop, and it had a double yellow line down the middle for about five miles, and you know what that means, no passing. And the speed limit was 25 miles an hour. (laughs) So I thought, well, I don't want to know what's in my heart, but I'll give it a go. So I chose to drive down that road every day to church for at least a month, and I chose days when I knew there'd be no traffic on that road but me. And it worked for two days, I think. And then all of a sudden, these cars came out of nowhere for the next several weeks. They were tailgating me. They were honking their horn at me. Once I had to pull over because I thought I was going to get hit. And as everybody went by me, they gave me a salute. (laughs) I won't do it for you, but you got it. You know what I'm talking about. 
Okay, fine. You know, I just, I, I, I worked on it. I prayed. I prayed like a maniac. God, help me. And finally, I settled into, I'm doing this for the Lord's sake. That's what Peter said. I'm doing it for the Lord's sake. I want the Lord's approval. I want my Father's approval. I don't care if these people don't approve of me. They don't, obviously. But I want God's approval. So I started feeling comfortable with the tailgaters and the honking and the, you know, hand gestures of friendship. But then something else happened. I started looking at them as all sinners. I mean, look at that sinner go by me. Go at 50 miles an hour. You don't love God the way I do. What's wrong with you sinners out there? Then I had to realize I had another problem. I was now a Pharisee, legalistic, and hating sinners. So I bore down. I said, God, save these sinners. Save them. Just save them, God. I can't stand it anymore. Save them. And that didn't help either. So I want you to know, I want you to know, I still have both bad habits. But I'm working on it. So pray for me. The third um, headline here for the royal priest is to strive to love believers well. Here's what Peter writes. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling I'm sorry, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For the eyes of the Lord, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, pastor, theologian, and philosopher, said the final apologetic of the church for the belief that the Father sent the Son in the world to ransom sinners is the love that the believers have for one another. Now, in a fallen world, um, we're not going to love each other perfectly. We know that. I get that. You get that. But when we fail to love at times, it doesn't mean we're not Christians. It just means we're actually pointing to the only, only perfect person who ever lived, and that is Jesus. He loved well all the time. But it also doesn't mean when we fail that we quit striving to love other believers. We strive because of what's at stake, and what's at stake is that the world might know that the Father sent the Son into the world to redeem sinners. That's it. That's what the world gets to see and conclude when they see how we love one another. Now, we should work towards filling the atmosphere of the church relationships with these qualities of harmony and sympathy, brotherly love, kindness, and humility. And what's fascinating about the way that that Peter structured that is you've got two qualities at the top, you've got two qualities at at the bottom, but in the middle are the brothers and sisters. It's like one commentator says, it's like two arms that wrap around our brothers and sisters in order to love them well with harmony and sympathy and kindness and humility. These are the qualities that make love in a church a reality. 
While these qualities are necessary in the church, we should ask, why? Why would these qualities, and not other qualities, 1 Corinthians 13 or anything else that John might have said about love, why are these qualities in a church necessary? Well, I think the answer to that is that the church is the only place where we're likely to meet people that we wouldn't ordinarily meet or even choose to have as friends. Now, think about it. In the church, there are differences. You know, if you grow up with a, a large family, you're likely to see a, a lot of generations, but you're not likely to hang out with all those generations outside your family. In the church, we have to. We got old people and we got newborns. And we're all one in that sense. Um, there are different ethnicities in the church. There are different political views in the church. I have been told that there are people in our church who don't think Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> and you love Hallmark. What's up with that? I've also been told that there are people who love cats more than dogs. Now, I've been stu a student of the Bible for some 40-plus years, and I want to tell you, I know dog lovers are going first in the rapture. I'm just saying. What was that? There are people who love the King James Bible. There are people who love the New Living Translation. There are Calvinists and Arminians They'll be in the same small group, pre-tribbers, mid-tribbers, post-tribbers, pan-tribbers. Now, what is it that holds this diverse group of people together? Why are we not fighting about those differences? Because we have one thing that holds us together in common over all those differences, and that is our devotion and our love and our service to Christ. That's something we all agree on. And it's been that way in the church ever since Jesus' resurrection. Actually, before. Because just think about it. <clears throat> Pardon me. At Jesus' table, there was a zealot who hated tax collectors. And they were both sitting at Jesus' table and following him. Why? Because of Jesus. That was the only reason. Now, verse 9 calls us to a brilliant way to demonstrate the majesty of Christ by the things we don't do. We don't take vengeance. We bless those who bring us pain. What we don't say is, bless your little heart. That's not a blessing. If you're from the South, that's a cursing. But what we do is we set in motion with our words grace that would strengthen others. And that's what I think Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace is a power. Grace is a power that, has, that, that, that God uses in the lives of other people when we say things that are gracious and it starts to work in them. They may need strength. They may need comfort. They may need correction. Those of those things are love, but all of those things are grace. We, we do this because there's a promise for us, and that is in uh, when, when Paul said, uh, I'm sorry, Peter says, for because, for, uh, here's the cause, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. His ears are open to their prayer. 
This reminded me of a, of a text in Second um, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles 16. Uh, and I don't know if Peter was thinking of it, but it's, I thought of it. And in 2 Chronicles 16, it says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those who heart, whose hearts are committed towards him. So think about this. When somebody dismisses you as old-fashioned, delusional because of your faith in Christ, or you're on the wrong side of history because you're not up with the uh, progressive sexuality that's going on in our country right now, when they say all those things to you, it's not as bad as having your hand cut off, but it still hurts. What do you do? You bless them. And the reason that you can do that is because the eyes of the Lord are looking for you and watching over you and he sees the pain or the hurt or whatever it is that's come into your life and he's standing there ready to give you grace to strengthen you when you're needing it. You don't even need to ask much. You say, oh, God, help. And he'll give you the grace you need to strengthen you in that moment. His throne is always present. We are always present at his throne. The throne of grace in time of need. In the time of need. Not before you get there, but when you get there. That's what our God does for us. And so we know this promise is for us. That means we can be royal priests. Now being a royal priest doesn't mean that we are special or better than anyone else. Being a royal priest makes us responsible. Now imagine at Cornerstone Church... We gather as royal priests on the weekends and several times during the week to proclaim boldly the excellencies of Christ. But what if we were to take up our royal priesthood and bring it into our homes? As husbands and wives, priests serving one another, serving their children, children serving their parents. What if we took up our a royal priesthood for the sake of our spouse's growth in holiness? What if we took up our priesthood for the sake of our co-workers' welfare? If we take up our royal priesthood, it will help us to navigate the polarizing politics and anger that's out there today. Now, we're not cookie-cutter priests. We don't all have the same roles and jobs and giftings and that sort of a thing, but it does make us a fellowship of people who are responsible to carry out our role as royal priests. Now, as such, as a royal priest, I'm responsible for announcing the primary aspect of Christ's excellence. Now, this is my choosing. You may think of something else. When you think about all the excellencies of Christ, you know, uh, mercy, uh, power, light, majesty, uh, they're all there. But if I had to choose one that I would put right at the top of the list because it just means so much to me, I would put at the top of the list of the excellencies of Christ this phrase, Jesus forgives sinners. Imagine um, that Jesus comes to you on a bus. I'm taking this little liberty of metaphor from a book I read a long time ago by C.S. Lewis. Imagine Jesus comes along to you on a bus. You're walking along outside, and he stops the bus, opens the door, he looks at you and says, come on in. 
You don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. So he steps out the bus. And he says, here, let me show you to your seat. I want you to take a, a trip with me, a journey. I want you to meet my father. Come on. So you get on the bus. He shows you your seat. You sit down. And as you sit down, Jesus leans over and he says to you, I want you to know every sinful infraction of your life up to today against my father and against me has been forgiven. We're never going to bring it up again. In fact, we have the capacity to forget about it. Oh, and by the way, every sin that you commit going forward, you don't even know what they are yet. Forgiven. Because of what I've done for you. All you have to do is get in on the bus, sit down, thank God for his mercy. And by the way, you do get to bring all your baggage with you. Because that baggage has been holding you back from knowing the love of God in Christ. And God will heal you from the pain of that baggage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first, we pray for those who need to get on the bus this morning, as it were. We don't mean to diminish the glory and the excellencies of Christ by this metaphor, but just to point out how gracious you are so that we can bring all of our baggage all of our messy lives to you in confidence that you will forgive, you will save, you will heal, and you'll give us the gift of holiness. Father, we pray that you will draw those to Christ whose hearts you've already been preparing by your secret working in them by the Spirit. We also pray for ourselves that you will help us to live up to our calling as royal priests to live for your name's sake, not ours. To live in a way that puts the spotlight on the excellent worth of Jesus. To live in a way that serves the welfare of others. Just give us the power necessary for this lifestyle in this coming year. We further ask that you will give us opportunities, many opportunities, to explain why this matters so much to us and how it is how it is that Jesus satisfies our souls in a way that nothing else does or can because his presence is in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and sing together as royal priests. Right now.